Well, good morning. Please open your Bibles to Acts 8, verses 26 to 40. And if you're able, please stand for the reading of God's Word. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south, to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and uh, and was returning, seated in his chariot. And he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this, like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter and like a lamb before its shearer is silent. So he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. And the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus. And as he passed through the As he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you this morning for the privilege of meeting together. We thank you for your word, which is a lamp to our feet and a light to our pathway. And we thank you for the salvation accomplished in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ without which we have no hope. Now be with us in this study. Teach us what we do not know. Guide us where we ought to go. And correct us where we are wrong. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. You may be seated. This morning we will be studying a faithful evangelist and eager Ethiopian. I have a few reasons for my selection of this passage. First, we'll be with the same author as we've been with through the past three years. A short three years, I might add. What we have learned thus far in Luke will benefit our study in Acts. Second, an obvious subject is, uh, that is brought forth here, evangelism, can be linked to a statement of Jesus at the end of the Gospel of Luke in chapter 24, verses 46 to 47. Thus, it is written that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. We'll look at three points this morning. One, a directed disciple and teachable treasurer. Two, the informed and the ignorant. And three, the evangelist, and the evangelized. But first, we should become acquainted with the background of our passage. Why, you may ask? The simple answer is that in a Bob Ross painting, no one focuses on one lone, cra- uh, one lone cloud on the horizon in order to appreciate the entire piece of art. The whole canvas must be observed to reach a true appreciation. In light of this magnificent... Uh, In the same way, before coming to our passage this morning, 
we should look at the background to understand and appreciate what Luke has written beforehand. And so now we come to the background. Uh, The Luke and Acts narratives come as a package. Luke constructed these two volumes for Theophilus, who had been under some kind of biblical instruction and was somewhat familiar with the Lord Jesus, his person and teaching. The goal of Luke in writing his gospel account was explicit in Luke 1.4, that Theophilus would have certainty concerning the things that he had been taught. Please turn just a few pages to your left to Acts 1, 1 1-3. Here we find a summary of the gospel account. Luke says that it all dealt with what Jesus did and taught, pre- and post-resurrection. It reads like this, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And a summation of Acts is found in a few verses later. In verse 8, if you look down at the text, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. The Gospel of Luke then deals with what Jesus did and taught, while the book of Acts deals with witness through the Holy Spirit. And so coming to Acts uh, chapter 2, just giving a brief summary Chapters 2 through 5 are filled with accounts of Peter, John, and the rest of the apostles proclaiming that Jesus had been crucified, buried, and raised from the dead according to biblical prophecy. In the words of Luke, with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Their testimony was being given in Jerusalem just as Christ had commanded in chapter 1. And so now we come to chapter 6, if you turn a few pages to your right, where Luke gives us a passing glance at Philip. He is one of the seven men selected to care for the Greek-speaking widows of the church. He was a man well-respected and honored among his brethren. Chapter 6, verse 3 says, he was of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom. His counterpart, Stephen, is the main focal point of chapter 6 and 7. After he is stoned to death, all the church is scattered to Judea and Samaria. The second stage now unfolds gospel witness to the regions of Judea and Samaria, just as Christ had commanded in chapter 1. Philip takes center stage in chapter 8. Verse 5 says that in a Samaritan city, he proclaims to them the Christ, Crowds believed to the degree that Luke could write in 8.8, there was much joy in that city. Philip remains in Samaria through verse 25, where we meet him for our passage this morning. So now we come to our first Roman numeral, a directed disciple and teachable treasure. And your first uh, point A is Philip quickly obeys. Philip quickly obeys. An angel appears to Philip giving him two commands. He hears the words, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. This uh, phrase, go toward the south, can also be translated, and if you look down, you might have a footnote in your Bible. It can be translated, go about noon. Well, perhaps Luke was seeking to convey both ideas. The two commands are succinct. Rise and go. Rise from the place you are currently in Samaria and go to a road that is in the midst of a desert. The journey would be dry and hot. This would be very different from where he had uh, previously been ministering in Samaria. He proclaimed the gospel to crowds. Unclean spirits came out of many. Many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. Both men and women were baptized, but here in this desert awaits one man to whom Philip must proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. 
The angel's command was simple and direct. And likewise, the response was simple and direct. Luke tells us that Philip rose and went. Let's imagine for a moment the possible excuses that Philip could have made when he heard the angel's words. He had no time to prepare for the journey. Perhaps he could have thought to himself, I shouldn't go without my luggage. I'll probably need a few sets of clothes. Food for the long journey would be nice, and I can't forget companions. I'll need to ask some of my friends if they could go along with me. Oh, the prayers of the saints. How could I leave before I ask people to keep me in prayer? Or he could have thought, this angel wants me to make a journey at high noon in the desert. Maybe someone else would be better suited than me. Maybe uh, all that walking might lead to dehydration or even worse, death. Let's forget his own personal benefit. He could have determined to stay for the newly converted Samaritans. He would reason this way. I just proclaimed the good news of Jesus Christ to them. Certainly they'll need further encouragement in the coming weeks. This angel will understand that I just can't go. But that would all sound eerily similar to excuses made to Jesus in Luke 9. Lord, first let me go and bury my father. I will follow you, Lord, but first let me say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Do you ever excuse yourself from obedience? What reasons do you give? Maybe you haven't wanted to lose money, friends, your job, or peace in the family. Have you sought to run away from the commands of God because of personal comfort? If you have, you are playing the game of putting your hand to the plow and looking back. Be like Philip. When he heard the angel say, rise and go, he did just as he was commanded. He obeyed quickly and without excuse. Now we come to our second uh, point, the Ethiopian reads. The Ethiopian reads. Luke inter next introduces us to the Ethiopian eunuch. First, he is described as an Ethiopian. If you can look down at verse 27 in your Bibles. He was from modern day Sudan, the location of the ancient kingdom of Ethiopia. This is the only Ethiopian noted in the whole book of Acts, but not the only African. Africans were converted on the day of Pentecost following the preaching of Peter. This Ethiopian was also a eunuch. One commentator writes, Here the word indicates a castrated person. The Ethiopian man was only half a man, and as such he was not permitted to join the assembly of the Lord according to the law. And you can find that restriction in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 1. This Ethiopian eunuch was also a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. It was not uncommon for eunuchs to hold high positions in government. Hege is noted as the king's eunuch in Esther 2.3 and was appointed to be in charge of the women. And Daniel the prophet, who was likely a eunuch, had to ask Babylon's chief of the eunuchs to refrain from eating or drinking the king's wine and food in Daniel 1.8. This eunuch was also a national treasurer, or what we could understand today as the secretary of the treasury, or the treasurer. This eunuch was in charge of all her treasure overseeing the massive financial enterprise and possessions of the queen, speaks to importance for this eunuch. Another commentator writes, he has the prominent position of chancellor of the exchequer or finance minister in charge of the royal treasury and national revenue. This man was excluded from the assembly of the Lord held a high office in Ethiopia, and was the custodian of the queen's treasure. Finally, we have provided to us some information pertaining to his religious status. 
he is very likely a Gentile convert to Judaism. The eunuch had traveled for days to arrive in Jerusalem to worship. The distance from modern-day Jerusalem to Sudan would be over 1,000 miles. In making this trip, he would have to be relieved of his officiating duties for several days, if not weeks. And the travel, no doubt, cost a large amount of money, something that the queen allowed. But this eunuch is interested in more than just making a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to worship. He is acutely interested in a proper reading and understanding of Scripture. Luke describes him this way. He was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. Making good use of his time on his journey back to the homeland, this man had on his lap the scroll of Isaiah reading aloud. So now we come to our third point. Philip runs in obedience. Philip runs in obedience. In this second section, the Spirit speaks to Philip. He is again given two commands. Interestingly, this is the first time the Spirit speaks to someone in the book of Acts. Just as the angel was succinct in his instruction, so is the Spirit. And the Spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. These instructions are twofold. Go over and join this chariot. From this, we know that Philip is within eyeshot of the chariot. And this after probable days of travel from Samaria. Once again, Philip responds in unquestioning obedience. Luke tells us, In verse 30, so Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet. He didn't just rise and go as he did with the angel. He ran. This activity signifies tremendous trust in the Holy Spirit. We should note here that after hearing instruction from an angel in the spirit, Philip would be well aware of the sovereign direction of God. Chance was not dictating Philip's travels, but the sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Now we come to our second Roman numeral, the informed and the ignorant. And your first point is Philip asks, the Ethiopian responds. Philip asks, the Ethiopian responds. And we'll start at the second half of uh, verse 30. Philip does not ask for a name or shake his hand. He asks the eunuch a question mid-stride while the chariot's wheels are still spinning. Do you understand what you're reading? Here, Philip is using a play on words. This literally reads, do you know what you know again? Was this man just reading Isaiah or did he know the true meaning of it? Philip, as any wise evangelist would, seeks to lovingly question him for the purpose of proclaiming Christ. We should note here that both men assume one conclusive meaning of the text. Philip neither asks, "Uh, what do you think this means? Or, what do you feel like it means? The authority was not found in an individual, but Scripture. God had determined one particular meaning, and the responsibility of both men was to accept and embrace that meaning. Private interpretation was also not brought into the discussion, and rightfully so. God has always intended that He wouldn't have monastic Christians. The Bible should always be discussed in an open forum setting. This is what ABF is all about. We are to talk about our various perspectives and bring them into submission to the objective meaning of Scripture. In response to this question, the Ethiopian asks a question with blunt honesty. How can I unless someone guides me? Guide is literally to show the way. 
This man had recently been in Jerusalem to worship. He was concerned about the truth. He possessed a scroll of Isaiah, a document that because of the cost was not easily obtainable. But he didn't know about Jesus. He needed historical facts to correctly interpret the Scriptures, the very same situation that the disciples of John were in, in Acts 19, 1-2. Philip didn't need to hitchhike. He didn't need to offer money. His ride was already booked. The eunuch made that evident. He invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Verse 31, we read, Now two men are in the chariot riding along, discussing the truth, His question highlights that he was absolutely resolved to understand the meaning of Scripture. This resolve shows his regard for biblical authority. He is, like we see later on in the book of Acts, like the Bereans, examining the Scriptures. We also see in his question to Philip a kind of desperation to know the proper interpretation. Do you have this thirst to understand God's Word? Perhaps you are blasé, indifferent to whether the Bible means this or that. Remember the great benefits for the one who is hungry to understand. He will obtain wisdom, discernment, and be well equipped to live the Christian life. We also see in this Ethiopian humility, driving him to ask for help. Here we see an ignorant court official, well recognized in a kingdom palace, requesting help from an ignoble, lowly disciple. Why do we not ask for more? Why do we not ask for help more often? Do we think we have all the answers? Perhaps we don't remember that we are all members of one body dependent on one another for Christian growth. Let me encourage you to ask for help when you don't understand. In these ways, we can maintain humility and reliance upon one another. And then a little further down in verse 32, Luke clues us in on the passage that the Ethiopian was reading. Isaiah 53, 7-8. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. According to this passage, Someone had not refused death by the hands of others, been treated unjustly, and had his life taken away. Now we come to our second point. The Ethiopian lacks, Philip supplies. The Ethiopian lacks, Philip supplies. The eunuch doesn't know of whom the prophet speaks. He poses two possibilities for the he of Isaiah 53. Either Isaiah the prophet or someone else. In order to have the right answer, he needs his guide Philip to show the way. Not only did Philip have a strong grasp on the scriptures, he had been in the company of the apostles who had been with Jesus. He knew the historical facts. The Ethiopian had no such connections. He had no knowledge of Jesus. And the kind provision of God, though, He will soon not be lacking. Verse 35, if you look down at your Bibles, is the heart of the entire passage. For this is where Philip explains the death and resurrection of Jesus. This is the reason why the angel and the Spirit had commanded him to tell this man the good news of Jesus. This is the definition of evangelism. This is the constant proclamation in the New Testament. We may be tempted sometimes to think our actions can be a substitute for heralding the gospel. After all, actions speak louder than words, right? But this notion, when it comes to evangelism, is thoroughly anti-biblical. The only way to herald the good news of Jesus is to do as Philip, open our mouths. We cannot live the gospel 
nor communicate the words of life to people through clothing, feeding, or giving them a warm smile. These activities are good. Do them. But remember, the only way we can herald the gospel is to use words. Tell them that Christ is full of forgiveness. He is risen from the dead, forever defeating death and hell, and that He will come to judge the world in righteousness. Philip opens his mouth and gives clear witness to the good news of Jesus. He uses Isaiah 53, but that was, the only, that was only the starting place. The implication of beginning is that he used many other scriptures, much like Paul reasoning with the Thessalonians from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. Philip brought the whole testimony of scripture to bear upon his conversation with the eunuch. So let's focus upon where Philip focused. His starting point was Isaiah 53. So if you can, please turn several pages to your left. Isaiah is one book to the left of Jeremiah and one book to the right of Song of Solomon. This was a chapter to which Jesus directly referred to in Luke 22:37, in which he said, I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me, and he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. Our Lord Jesus Christ interpreted the whole of Isaiah 53 to be about Him. Here it is important that we remember that biblical authors sometimes only give a direct quote from only a few verses when they are referring to a much broader passage. When Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The statement is referring to all of Psalm 22. In the same way, in Acts 8, Luke refers to one and a half verses from Isaiah 53. But we should understand him as pointing to the entire chapter. Now, keep in mind that without the historical information for this Ethiopian, this section is an absolute riddle. We shouldn't be surprised that the Ethiopian didn't know who this passage was referring to. But we know this. We have seen it in Luke, and we have the New Testament account. Let's read for the uh, sake of the flow of uh, the chapter back in 52.13. And we'll read through the end of 53. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed What he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not." Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked, and with the rich man in his death. 
Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Jesus is the servant of the Lord. Jesus will be exalted. Jesus' appearance was marred beyond human semblance. Jesus was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows. Jesus was afflicted and smitten by God. Jesus, according to the pleasure of the Lord, was crushed for our iniquities. Jesus was oppressed and afflicted in judgment. Jesus would be buried with the wicked, but instead he was buried in the tomb of a rich man. Jesus is the justifier of many by the knowledge of himself. Jesus poured out his soul to death, but was risen from the dead. Jesus was considered a transgressor, but made intercession for the transgressors. Philip explained these truths from Isaiah 53 were literally fulfilled in the Lord Jesus. He, in fact, was despised and rejected by the Jewish people and lived his life as a man of sorrows. His express purpose in coming into this world was to die as the substitute for sinners. And that is exactly what we find him doing at the cross. Through mock trials and false accusations, he endured afflictions from the elders and chief priests and scribes. And even worse, he endured the afflictions and smiting of God upon the cross for the iniquities of his people. He was buried in the tomb of a rich man, Joseph of Arimathea. He was risen from the dead, for the apostles were all witnesses and appeared to them during 40 days after his resurrection. Philip uh, used many other scriptures to explain to him the good news of Jesus. If you could flip back to uh, Acts chapter 8. He utilized the whole of biblical authority to undergird his message. We're not told where else Philip went in, in, in scripture uh, in his discussion, but the eunuch no doubt heard much more of Jesus and messianic prophecies. Perhaps the explanation that Christ is the fulfillment of the sacrificial system of the old covenant and the one whom God has appointed as king according to Psalm 2. We can be sure of this though. One of the last subjects that Philip taught this man was baptism and that it was a demonstration of obedience to Christ. So now we come to the third Roman numeral, the evangelist and the evangelized. Your first point is the Ethiopian believes and is baptized. The Ethiopian believes and is baptized. Between verses 35 and 36, a miracle happened. This Ethiopian gladly received and believed the good news about Jesus. We know this because he is eager to be baptized. All disciples of Jesus were baptized following belief. The apostles didn't make this up. Luke didn't make this up. And this is not a tradition of the church. This was a command of Christ from Matthew 28, 19, to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Here, our Lord united baptism with disciple-making activities. Let's take a look at some of the evidence from the book of Acts. And you don't have to turn here. You can write these references down and look them up later today if you'd like. Chapter 2, verse 38 and 41. 
Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Chapter 8, verse 12. When they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Chapter 10, verses 47 to 48. Peter says, Can anyone withhold water from baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And then chapter 16, verses 14 to 15. This is Lydia. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized, she and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. We might be prone to agree with the method, but can easily miss the immediacy. In the Bible, the only way in which someone was identified as part of the church was baptism. The book of Acts knows nothing of an individual putting his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and forgetting about or delaying baptism. The book of Acts, uh, if you are in the mindset of uh, baptism isn't that important or Baptism can wait. There is no parallel for you in the New Testament. The apostles could not and would not consider you part of the church. A new convert's first step of obedience would be baptism. Believing and obedience go hand in hand. The Ethiopian was eager to demonstrate this. Without submission to Christ, faith is of no value. As James 2.17 says, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. To be justified, a sinner must, with no trust in man, cast himself upon the mercy of God in Christ. But the validation of that faith comes in obedience to the word of God. And of course, here in this context, we see that baptism is the Ethiopian's obedience. The commands of Scripture make up the Christian's law. He is dominated by what God says, and his life is conducted accordingly. We heard Daniel say a few weeks ago that justification is through faith alone, but justifying faith works. Here we see faith working in the eunuch being baptized. The first question that any new convert asks is, what does my Lord want me to do? The eunuch knows the answer. He's quick to validate his faith in Christ. Some of your Bibles may have a verse 37 in this passage. All I'll say now is that the earliest manuscripts do not contain this verse. We can talk about this more during the ABF. In God's kind providence, a body of water is spotted. The eunuch is quick to point this out, searching the landscape for an opportunity to obey his new Lord. The question, what prevents me from being baptized, doesn't have anything to do with him, uh, doesn't have anything to do, do with him being a eunuch, uh, nor is it a statement that puts his genuineness in question. His previous questions pertained to needed guidance in the interpretation of Scripture. Here, the question highlights his eagerness to follow through with obedience to Christ. This was because baptism was an expected step of obedience for all who believed in Christ. The chariot is commanded to stop. Uh, here in uh, verse 38, and both men exit. They both went down into the water with Philip baptizing the eunuch this was not the outward sign of what God had done in his heart. Baptized in the death of Christ and thus raised from the dead to walk in newness of life. This was the immediate result of true faith. And so we come to our second point. The Spirit carries Philip. The Spirit carries Philip. 
Following the baptism of the eunuch, the Spirit of the Lord carries Philip away. And the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. The consistent thread through the Acts is that the Holy Spirit speaks to direct, not uh, rapture. But at the end of the day, uh, how Philip arrives at uh, this town, Azotus, is a mystery. Whether the Spirit carried him up literally into the sky or revealed to him that the time had come to leave the eunuch, we don't know. Your third point is the Ethiopian rejoices. The Ethiopian rejoices. The eunuch is left without a chariot companion. However, he does not appear to be saddened by this sudden absence. His heart and mind have been fixed on the good news about Jesus, and he went on his way rejoicing. Perhaps he had on his mind that great word from Isaiah 56, 4-5. Thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast to my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Now, your last point is Philip preaches along the Mediterranean coast. Philip preaches along the Mediterranean coast. And we see that in verse 40. Philip finds himself at Azotus, which is some 20 miles northwest of where he was previously. This city was the old Philistine town of Ashdod. There he remained, preaching the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Up along the Mediterranean sea coast, Philip travels, casting gospel seed far and wide. There he is called the evangelist, a title given to him because of the very task he accomplished. Clearly, this man had fulfilled the ministry that he had received in the Lord. Now, before we conclude the study of this passage, there are a few applications I'd like to leave you with. Your first application is, tell the gospel to those you meet. Tell the gospel to those you meet. We should not overlook the massive expansion of the gospel in the book of Acts to the end of the earth. The Lord Jesus Christ didn't travel far and wide to other countries, but he commanded his disciples to go forth to all nations, bearing witness to his salvation. Philip was one of those disciples, and we should remember that he was not a professional evangelist, he wasn't a pastor. And he wasn't a missionary. He heralded the good news of Jesus to an Ethiopian eunuch. The eunuch was an outcast, not allowed to enter the assembly of the Lord. But in Christ, barriers were broken down and the offer of pardon was now an offer to every nation, tribe, people, and language. Remember in Luke, we learned that the curtain of the, uh, the, the curtain temple was torn in two. Breaking down all... Uh, Differences, we could say, between uh, folks. If you are sitting here today as a child of God, you are commanded to tell the gospel to those you meet. It's easy to think, however, that we can exercise partiality about who hears and who does not hear the gospel. After all, we already are partial when it comes to who we should vote for. We did that just this past Tuesday where we should live, what kind of car we should drive. But evangelism is not compatible with individualism. Evangelism is concerned with the interests of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who said in, five, in Luke chapter 5, verse 31, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. These sinners are democratic, Republican, socialist, atheistic, Islamic, transgender, and homosexual. And we run into them on a regular basis in the grocery store, at the bank, the mechanic shop, and yes, even on Facebook. There was no obligation on the part of God to send someone into your life to tell you of his mercy and grace in Christ. 
In love, then, seek out opportunities to tell of the good news of Jesus. God has equipped you with everything you need. And he's fully capable of using you. Your second application is make your obedience swift. Make your obedience swift. Two times throughout this passage, we clearly see the swift obedience of Philip. First to the angel and second to the spirit. He didn't make excuses, but immediately obeyed with full trust in his Lord. Remember that without submission to Christ, faith is of no value. As James 2.17 says, Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Whatever the Lord Jesus Christ has instructed, that shall you do. And quickly, remember that delayed obedience is disobedience. As, has God commanded me to love my wife? And speaking to you husbands now, has God commanded me to love my wife and helping her to understand Scripture? That she may be sanctified? Then I'll seek to make changes in my schedule to commit more time to this task. And now to you wives, has God commanded me to submit to my husband in all things and trusting myself to his leadership? Then I'll seek to make changes in my response to him. To you children, ask yourself this question. Has God commanded me to obey mom and dad? Then I'll do whatever they tell me. Has God commanded me this, to the whole church? Has God commanded me to confess my sins to my brother whom I have offended? Then I'll seek to regain unity and peace with him. Husbands, wives, children, brethren, if you don't understand how to walk in obedience, ask for help. Come to one of our elders or someone in the body. I encourage you to obey the Lord swiftly in all areas of life. Your third application is make your study of the Word of God deep. Make your study of the Word of God deep. We should also not overlook the acute interest, the intense interest of the Ethiopian in study of the Word of God. This man used his time well on his way back from Jerusalem in reading from the scroll of Isaiah. He was a busy court official of course, uh, probably having his schedule packed, but he disciplined himself to give careful attention to the Scripture. He was not satisfied with a mere understanding of it. When Philip questioned him, do you understand what you're reading? We can see in the man's response a resounding reply, no, but I desperately want to understand He was like a faithful Berean as he invited Philip into his chariot to join him in Bible study. He was like the psalmist who wrote in Psalm 119, With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Is there a parallel to this in your life? Do you desire the Lord to teach you his ways? to be led by the light of his word. An instruction for all true believers, according to 2 Peter 3.18, is to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Sit down with a pen and paper alongside your Bible. Write down questions as you read. Pay attention to context. Make applications. Utilize our church library just down the hall. And if you don't know where to begin, I'm sure Jeremy or Daniel will be more than happy to help you. And in deepening your study of God's word, you'll deepen your love and knowledge of our Lord. The fourth and final application is be baptized. Be baptized. The event of baptism caps or seals the interaction that Philip had with the eunuch. This was not uncommon for new converts Everyone who believed in Christ throughout the book of Acts was baptized immediately afterward. Baptism was the eunuch's first step of obedience to his new Lord and symbolic of the transformation that God had already done in his heart. We must highlight the fact that baptism was in direct connection with entrance into the church. This is how Luke could record that the number of the disciples multiplied greatly. 
If you are in the mindset of baptism is not important or baptism can wait, there is no parallel for you in the New Testament. The apostles could not and would not consider you part of the church. You may be thinking, baptism could not possibly be that critical. All I need to have is a, relation, is a personal relationship with Jesus. Let's hear what Peter says in his Pentecost sermon in chapter 2, verse 38. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Peter unashamedly linked baptism with repentance. In other words, the natural result of repentance is baptism, a display of total allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ. We should not be surprised that a few verses later, Luke tells us, so those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. For those of you uh, who have never been baptized and yet have faith in Christ, there are three possible camps you are in. First, perhaps you have believed in Jesus Christ, are genuinely converted, but have delayed or forgotten about baptism. Know that you should seek to be baptized as quickly as possible. Christ is your Lord, and He commands you to be baptized as a public sign that you belong to Him and His church. Second, maybe you have thought yourself to be a Christian, but are actually not. You may ask, how can that be? It could be that your lack of obedience to the command of Christ directly after your profession of faith is evidence that you never believed in the first place. Might I encourage you to examine your life in light of Scripture with judgment day honesty? The third camp you might be in is that you're genuinely converted, but this is the first time you've heard of the importance of baptism. Well, now you have no excuse to wonder. You know the will of God regarding baptism. In light of this magnificent encounter uh, of Philip with the Ethiopian brethren, let's seek to implement these four applications. To tell the gospel to those you meet, make your obedience swift, make your study of the word of God deep, and be baptized. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for Philip, the faithful evangelist, for the conversion of the Ethiopian and the spread of your gospel to the end of the earth. Now strengthen us to implement these important truths to present our bodies as living sacrifices so that you would be pleased with our worship. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.